Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's great to be here. It was wonderful in first service to be able to share this message. Really looking forward to sharing it again with you guys. Um, because this message that I'm about to share with you as we wrap up the What Did Jesus Do series is so near and dear to my heart. It's actually the thing I would shout from the rooftops. If, you, if I could not look insane and shout from rooftops, this is what I would shout. It would be this. You ready? I'm not going to shout it. I'm just going to say it. Jesus embraces messy people. That's good news, right? If you think that's good news, just put your hands together once. Jesus embraces messy people, right? The, the people who are clapping more than once, they're the messy people in the room. They're like, yes, yes, he loves me in my mess. I'm with you. Well, it is great to be here. I am Jeremiah. Um, my, I've served at a, a church down the road, Word of Life Assembly of God, for the past 10 years. And as of July 1st, I stepped away from ministry there and have been able to travel around and preach to different churches in our community. And one thing that has been standing out to me is just the beauty of God's church, the, the differences, the nuances of people in rural settings and urban settings, and the amazingness of the texture of his people is just blowing me away. So I'm thankful to be able to be here with you today in Clay, New York, and enjoy God's word. Uh, but I'm going to ask if you would just pray with me as we open up his word this morning. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to dig into the word you gave us. As Pastor Jason said, you, we hold tightly to your word. So this morning, God, I pray that you would help me to communicate clearly your word and help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what you're speaking to us by your spirit today. God, I thank you and I praise you for this opportunity. Lead us and guide us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I have been married for 21 years. My wife and I got married in the year 2000, which was her gift to me to make it easy to remember how many years we've been married. Um, she didn't do anything fancy with the date, so that's still a trick for me. But we've been married for 21 years, and two years after we got married in the year 2002, we had our first child. When we found out that my wife Tara was pregnant, it was all... Um, dreamy and wonderful ideas of what the moment would be like when he was born. I remember uh, hearing stories of perfect deliveries of babies and thinking, this is going to be wonderful. There's going to be this tiny little hand that reaches out and grabs my pinky finger, and there's going to be these coos and, and maybe, early, maybe a little bit of late night sleeping, but, you know, we're probably going to, everything's going to be fine. And in my imagination, having a child was very, very clean and easy. Um, I don't know why. I was, you know, maybe just too young to know better. But as the process continued towards Labor Day, things got messy. Things got messy not just in, I'll, I'll be careful here, um, changing moods of life and uh, physical alterations, but things got messy um, even right in the labor and delivery room. Believe it or not, having a baby is pretty messy. And so I was in, I'm going to fast forward right to the labor and delivery room. By the way, that labor and delivery room at any hospital is just magic. It's, in my mind, better than Disney World. Because you walk in, it's like a normal like room with cabinets and a bed and a little, some kind of weird scale with warm air blowing on it. Um, but then once labor actually begins, the room transforms into this amazing technological feat. There's like cabinets that flip upside down and lasers and mirrors and spotlights that shine down from heaven. And then the table, the, ta the bed that my wife is laying on like dismembers and changes over into this other thing. And I'm amazed at 
What once, just moments ago, seemed to be a simple hotel room is now a flurry of action, changing like crazy, fast, in a moment. And so as I'm going through the process, sitting next to my wife, doing my husband duty, just whispering kind words and popping a breath mint in every other minute, um, I'm chatting with her about how she's doing such a great job while she's in immense pain, you know, and, and you know, it was tough for me. People don't understand, it's very hard. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're all like, what kind of guy is this up here? Um, so after time went by and the labor and uh, delivery progressed, things didn't go as planned. My wife's heart rate, uh, my, the baby's heart rate dropped, my wife's blood pressure dropped. And then every, with every contraction came complications with my son's heart rate and safety. And before long, the busyness of the room began to uptick. People were coming in that I hadn't seen. Um, there were people throwing like welding masks on and face shields and and almost seemed like a war was about to break out. And I didn't know what was happening and I was really, really scared. The mess of the moment that I did not create but I was part of really terrified me. And I was grateful for the people who were in the room that knew how to handle the mess, how to handle the moment, and help put me at ease. Now, at the end of the day, my, our story goes on to say that the umbilical cord was wrapped around my son's neck, and the doctor was able to release the tension from around his neck as he was born. And so he came out, and the nurses and doctors were all able to do the things that they needed to do, but after the fact, things still got messy. The room, not just physically, but even life in general with a baby is messy, right? And as we lived life together, you know what one thing stuck out, even in the labor and delivery room, after that little baby was born and after all the trauma of the moment? This mess of a situation happened, and the one thing I thought about was, I love these people. I love this woman. I love this child. And it wasn't magical. It was determined. It was like, in the midst of the mess, the one thing that mattered was the love that we had for one another. And we're going to look at a story today in Scripture where I feel like oftentimes we can in life get distracted by the mess and lose sight of the fact that it's the people that mean the most. It's the dignity and the value of the people that matter most, no matter the mess. So, as I've shared with you, the title of this talk is Jesus Embraces Messy People. And that's good news for us because, why? Because we're all messy. And our culture unfortunately, likes to determine us and categorize us by our mess at times, right? And maybe not just our culture, but maybe even us as people, we kind of like to categorize others by their mess. But God doesn't do that. God loves messy people. God loves people with issues. God is very, very good at loving people of all different backgrounds, perspectives, and preferences and issues. And that's good news because every person in this room has a different mess. Look to the person to your left, See that person right there? They're a mess. Look to the person to your right. See that person right there? They're a mess. Husbands and wives, if you're sitting together, just careful. Just be careful here, all right? Just be careful. We're all messy. We all have messes in our lives. Some we want to talk about. Some we're okay talking about. Some we have never spoken about. The reality is I want to bring this common denominator to us this morning is that if we're honest, we've all made a mess of things at times. And if we're also honest, we've been in messes that are not of our own making, but are of other people's making that we now have to deal with. 
And there's ways that we see Christ handling messes that we can learn from, but there's also ways that unfortunately we have learned to deal with messes that are not so Christ-like. So today I want to kind of point out four ways that I think I, or maybe you, or we, have dealt with other people's messes, or maybe even our own messes, that are not so Christ-like. Because I think for me, I have, to, I have to kind of see how I shouldn't do things before I see that I should. And then I trade the should-nots for the shoulds. Is that making sense with anybody? I'm a simple guy. I need to identify my problem and then figure out a way to move through, over, under, around it and make things right. And so today is not about a complex, you know, theological, deep concept. It's about a simple truth that is hard to apply because simple things are not easy. And I think today's conversation is a simple one, but a fundamental one. It takes a lifetime to master these things. So the first thing we like to do, instead of doing what Christ does, is we judge people by their mess. We actually begin to build brackets in our lives and categories of people by their mess. We think she's a gossip. We think he's an addict. We think that person is X, Y, or Z. We position people in our lives in categories according to the mess that we see them in. It becomes like a, a world, a junior high cafeteria in our lives, right? Like we start to put people at the tables that we think they belong according to the messes. And I want to challenge you to not invisibly and without warning categorize people by the problems in their lives, but rather see them as creations of God with dignity and value separate from their mess. So the first thing we do is we judge them by their mess. The second thing I think we do is we blame them for their mess. When we see people in a tough situation or they've messed something up, we begin immediately to identify why it happened and assume it's their fault. If not, we assume it's somebody's fault. And then we start telling them what they can do to fix it. Or we ask them this question that is ever so tempting for parents. Why did you think you should do that? What? You, some of you parents can finish this. What were you thinking? Right? Now, I've had that question posed to me. I've posed that question to myself. I've, I've thought, Jeremiah... What in the world were you thinking? In that moment, I am sometimes rightfully owning the mess, yes, but we've got to be careful when we begin to knee-jerk response, blame people for the mess they're in, and then act accordingly because we don't have the whole story. Be careful not to blame people for their mess. Thirdly, we shame people for their mess. Right? We look at them and we start, we think, maybe with altruistic motivations, maybe with positive regard for them, if I make you feel bad for the thing that you're doing, you'll get better. Has that ever worked for anybody in the room to, to be made to feel shame or guilt for something and then, okay, now I'm going to be a better human being? I don't think that's ever worked for anybody in the history of mankind. As a matter of fact, one of the things that Christ bore for us was our shame. So it's a tool and I say this carefully and thoughtfully, it is shame is a tool of the enemy used to keep people under the weight of their sin. And so when we begin to shame people for the things that they have done or the mess that they're in that's not even their fault, we use a tool of the enemy against people that we ought to be loving. Be careful not to fall in the temptation that I often do that is shaming people for their mess. And this last one, this fourth one, this one's tricky 
because it feels really kind. And I've been a benefactor of this one. I've done this, and I've, I've caught myself a few times doing it, even recently, is we excuse people from their mess. And we say things like, oh, don't worry about it. They'll get over it. Or we say, you know what? I mean, yeah, I mean, the Bible was written 2,000 years ago. It's no big deal. Yeah, I mean, you can interpret it however you want. Um, or we ignore it altogether, and we say, yeah, let's just, you know, what are you doing later today? You know, somebody might be saying, oh, I got into this argument with my parents. I got in this argument with my wife. I'm, I'm having a rough week, man. Oh, really? So what's next week going to look like? <laughs> and we start trying to bounce the subject quickly instead of entering into the mess with them in a loving, caring way. And we ignore it and excuse them from it. So be careful. There's a, there's a trip hazard there. Ignoring anybody's mess when they're willing to share with you what it is is not the best pathway forward. Embrace the mess of that moment. And allow God to do something wild in it. So those are the four things I think we do. And we're going to look at four things that Christ does that kind of challenge us. Not kind of. They do challenge us to be different. There's a better way. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. You may be familiar with this story. This is a story that has been um, better preached by better preachers. It's a story that has lots of rabbit holes and meanings for different words that we could spend all day talking about, but I'm really going to take a flyover look at this story and share and hopefully challenge you to do something different this week. John 8, 1 through 11 starts like this. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered as he sat down and taught them. Remember, there's a crowd there. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. When I first read this story, uh, as like a teenager, I think it was, I never imagined the crowd. I always forgot that there was a ton of people there watching. There's really some key players in this story so far, right? We have Jesus, we have the crowd, onlookers, we have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and we also have the followers of Christ, the disciples that are paying attention and even writing the story down later for us to look into. I think we all could probably identify with one of these characters. Verse 7. I'm sorry, backing up to verse 4. As they bring this woman in front of Jesus, they say, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? And they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Can you imagine the awkward silence in that moment? I'm a guy who's okay with awkward silence, but this is a whole nother level of awkward silence. This woman has been caught in the midst of her mess. Whatever brought her there, whatever situation, whatever environment or context was in her life that got her there, She's there, and she's been thrown down in front of Jesus, and Jesus closes his mouth, stoops down, and scribbles in the dirt. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left 
in the middle of the crowd with the woman. The crowd's still watching. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. It's got to be one of my favorite stories of Jesus' life and ministry because I'm a mess. Because I identify with the woman who was thrown down in front of him. I identify also with the Pharisees that have thrown her down. And with the curious onlookers wondering what Jesus would do. And I look at this story and I see better ways to handle the messes of our world. Jesus was, first of all, slow to speak. He took his time. Some of you, you're fixers. You see a problem and you want to jump in right away and start pointing out all the ways you can fix it or help somebody else fix it. But Jesus was very careful not to jump into the conversation. I mean, he's God, right? <laughs> he's great. He was slow to speak. In James 1.19, the Bible teaches us to understand this. This is James writing. Understand, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. This one's tougher. This is in the same chapter, but get ready for this. If anybody considers themselves a Christian in the room, or maybe you think or you're watching online and you like to do kind of routine things to build up your faith, those kind of routine things that you do to build up your faith, those, that's called religion, right? Sometimes the word religion gets a bad rap, but ultimately it's a process that you go through to build your faith, which we, if you're here listening to my voice, you're doing. If you claim to be religious, James writes, don't and don't control your tongue, you're only fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Have you ever been in a mess of your own making and had someone choose to speak to you with thoughtfulness, with kindness, with a reassurance that is like comforting? I know I have. And I want to be one of those people and I want to be part of a people that take our time before we enter into conversation with people who we know are hurting and we know we're embarrassed. We know who are confused. And take the time like Jesus did to speak to the situation well. The second thing that Jesus does is he sees there's more mess to the mess. Right? It, and I, I will dare to say that none of us have ever made a mistake or a wrongdoing or found ourselves in a mess that was isolated to our own choices. We're, we're, a con, we're in a context, we are whole people living in a whole world impacted by various things. And in the midst of our moments, Jesus, in this moment, points out the fact that there's always more mess to the mess. How did the Pharisees know to go, where to go to get her? How did they know at what time of day she would be where she was? Is there more mess there that we don't know about, that only Jesus knows about? Even in the fact that he tells them to drop the stones, or he tells them he was without sin, drop the first stone, he's recognizing and pointing to the fact that there's messes in every one of these people's lives. And so as we encounter messes in other people's lives, we may, and we ought to, do well to remember there's always more mess to the mess. The third thing I see Jesus do is restoring dignity without ignoring the mess. Right? He, he looks to this woman, not in a condemnation way, not in a, a judgment-filled way, unforgiving way, but in a way that restores dignity to her and gives her the chance to speak freely to him. I was an eighth grader. I'm, I've been a mess since like junior high. F quite frankly, I've been a mess for a long time. I know some of you, you know how, much, how many big messes I can make. Um, 
I was in eighth grade. It was the first time I was in eighth grade, first of three times I was in eighth grade. And I was there, and there was a strip on a science table with outlets on it. And I thought it would be a good idea to drop these staples in the outlets. And um, so I'm putting them in there, and I'm kind of half paying attention to the teacher. And the teacher points me out, and she's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, nothing, nothing, nothing. And the kid across from me sees me doing the same thing. And so he starts dropping the staples in the outlet. And, uh, you know, we're just kind of goofing around, and I'm like, I'm looking at him not thinking this is a bad idea. I'm thinking, wow, he's doing it so much worse than I was. I'm a better staple dropper. Well, he gets one stuck in the outlet. And I reach across, trying to help my friend out, and I go to grab the staple out of the outlet. And just as I grab I like barely touched it. Boom! The thing blows up in my face blows up. My hand, my whole hand was covered in dark soot from the spark explosion in this outlet. Now, when I think back to it, in my 43-year-old mind now, it feels like 4th of July. Now, I don't know if that's what it really looked like, but what did happen is the one in front of me blew up, the next one blew up, the next one, and sparks flew up until the whole circuit breaker blew and the lights went out in the room. And so what I was most worried about over the course of that week wasn't the tens of thousands of dollars of repair that needed to happen in the science lab. It was the fact that I was missing sub day in the cafeteria because that Friday was the day that they were going to offer subs to all the kids in the junior high that I was part of. So I was bummed out in in-school suspension. The fire chief came to my house, told me about all the work that needed to be done to repair that wing of the science department. And the one, the one thing that I was worried about was missing sub day. What a mess of a kid. Come on, Jeremiah. So I'm sitting in in-school suspension on Friday, and I see Mrs. Benson, my wonderful science teacher, coming down the hallway. And sure enough, I'm thinking, this is it. She's going to kill me in the principal's office. It's over. She takes me to the principal's office and turns me around a corner. And inside the, the office, she had built out a one-person sub-buffet for me to have just for me. She didn't tell anybody. She said, stay in here as long as you want. Just finish the food, and then when you come out, throw all your garbage in the trash and go back to in-school suspension. She didn't ignore the mess I made. She didn't make me think it wasn't a big deal, but she restored a little bit of dignity to this goofy, dare I say stupid, <laughs> eighth grader. And it was, I wish I could say that right after that moment, I started treating every person in authority with love and grace and kindness and respect. That wasn't the case. It took a while and is taking a while for God to work out in me the things that ought to be. But it's moments like that where people can speak and see ways to give dignity to those in messes that change our lives slowly one day after the other. And as, I, as I'm sharing that story, I want to remind you that it is a slow process. We don't get to, into the messes quickly and we don't get out of them quickly. It takes a long time for us to learn lessons. Now, my, my last point here is um, similar to the third one, but I think it's different enough to make it separate because it speaks to the way that Jesus carried truth and grace with the tension of love. You see, Jesus did something in the midst of this moment that empowered the woman to go and sin no more. Now, we don't know much more about her story, but we do know that Christ spoke to many in ways of truth and love that changed their lives from the day he spoke it forward. And when he did so, there was a tension in the air that when I read it, I can't ignore it. 
I feel like there's a moment where he carries a strong, powerful tension of not being weak, being loving, not being ignorant and false towards the situation, being truthful, and in so doing creates a tense moment of life change. And I think we can do that because I believe that Christ empowers us to do so. Jesus spoke the truth with love. He had a way of keeping high positive regard for the people in their mess, while at the same time being brutally candid. You can only be brutally candid as Christ was if you are also at the same time having the highest possible regard for the people that you're speaking to. Think of it as a rubber band. Anybody ever dangled a rubber band? Right? It's, this is great. I used to flick. Oh. So I used to use rubber bands in ways in restaurants that weren't so good. And use the tension of a rubber band to like fling things. Right? I know nobody else has ever done stuff like that. I mean, maybe I was doing it last month. Maybe I was doing it as a ninth grader. You can use the tension for a rubber band for some different things, right? But the important thing is that it's able to carry tension. And if you don't have tension in that band of rubber, it really can't shoot anything anywhere. But if you learn to use it, it carries with it a power. And it might be a simple illustration, but if I were to kind of hang a giant rubber band from one side of the room, and let's call this side of the room truth, and then hang the other end of it over here and call this side of the room grace. We could hang that band from either end without connecting it to the other hook, and it would just hang there powerless. It wouldn't have any tension in it. But if we wanted to create tension in the rubber band and we strung it from one side of the room to the other and stretched it out between truth and grace, then I would call the tension created in that band love. Because it's between love and grace, as we practice candid, brutal honesty with people that we love well, that we find tension. There's a tension in that. If you're hearing my voice today and you're hearing like about other people's messes and you're like, man, I don't really feel that. I don't know what that's like. Then you might be leaning way too heavy to one side or the other. There is a tension that we ought to be feeling in the midst of dealing with people's messes that I believe is love. The power of grace is felt when we choose to live in that tension. It's also the power that shows us who we are and gives us the ability to be grateful in deeper, more meaningful ways. With this, I'm going to invite the band to come up as we come to a close. Tim Keller said it this way. He said, the gospel is this. We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hoped. The greater I see my mess, or the clearer I see my mess, or the more loving people I have in my life who can help me see my own situation, while at the same time pointing to the Savior, the greater depth I have of gratefulness for who he is on my behalf. It would be a tragedy if what you heard from me today was four ways to not do it and four ways to do it. And now leave and try. Because what would happen is by 7 o'clock tomorrow morning, we would all jack it up, right? Maybe some of you really good people, you'd make it to like lunchtime or maybe even dinner if you have an easier day. But I know for me, if I'm just trying to do it in my own strength, if I'm trying to treat people in their mess with love and kindness and hold my tongue, then in me, I don't not, I, I do not have it. That's weird. 
Maybe I want donuts later. <laughs> I don't have it in me to do what Jesus did. And that's the point. When we try to do it on our own, we make a mess. To do what Jesus did, we need Jesus to do it in us. So I want to invite you this morning as you hear my words to maybe you're the person in the mess. Maybe people have brought you and shamed you and blamed you for your mess. And you need to hear this morning that Jesus loves you and loves you like the child that you are in his family. And as you bring your mess to him, he looks at you as his child with dignity and forgiveness and grace. And he says, I don't accuse you. I don't condemn you. I stretch out my arms for you. And I love you. Go and sin no more. He is for you, not against you. If this morning you're in a mess of your own making or someone else's making, I want to remind you and encourage you that Christ is for you and he loves you. Maybe you're someone here today and you're identifying with the Pharisee or the crowd, the skeptic onlooker, skeptical onlookers, and you're going, oh, I do these things. I shame people. I judge people. I categorize people by their, by their sin issue or their preferences. And I, and I have at times been guilty of not giving the dignity to them as human beings created in the image of God. And as a result, I need to drop my rock. Maybe that's you this morning. You've, you've come to other people's messes with a finger point instead of a rubber band of love. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you need to do some business with the Holy Spirit and invite him into your life to convict you and to allow you to make those situations right again, to do so this week. I've been there. I'm probably there right now. But what if we all dropped our rocks and we lived this week directed by the Holy Spirit to do what Jesus did? What if we followed Jesus out of our mess into the tension of love for others and helped create a community where the tension of love is felt in our neighborhoods in a way that it has never been felt before. I want to be part of that. I want to be part of a community that loves their neighbors in a way that reflects the image of God. Father, I thank you for the chance to share your word today. I pray that you would use it beyond anything that simple words of man can do. I pray by your spirit you would convict us of sin empower us and encourage us by way of your forgiveness and grace and give us the strength and wisdom to act according to your will. God, we praise you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.